1: Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hey Jamie, it's me, Jamie. Do not forget to buy lentils, or the lentil soup you're making for dinner will be sorely lacking. By the way, Mrs. Calloway says thanks for helping her bundle home in auto. She appreciates the extra savings, even though you kept using the word apropos incorrectly. But the main thing is, do not forget to buy... Uh, what was it? Something apropos, the lentil soup. Sorry, I'll call you back. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.
0: Hi, and welcome to the pollsters. I'm Kristen Soltis, Anderson, Republican pollster at the firm Echelon Insights. And I'm Margie O'Meara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And we're in our interview episode this week, so fortunate to be joined by Courtney Kennedy, who is Director of Survey Research at the Pew Research Center. Courtney, thank you so much for joining us on our interview show.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: And Courtney, I also have to thank you for being one of my interview subjects. (laughs) Back about six years ago when I was writing for, uh, I think it was still pollster.com. I'm not even sure that it was Huffington Post pollster yet. Uh, but mm-hmm. Mark Blumenthal deputized me to interview folks um, at APOR in Chicago in 2010. And you were an award winner that year. So I remember interviewing you about a paper you'd written um, all about, uh, I, I think the basic summary was how people cognitively able to handle the task of taking a survey when they're distracted, if they get called on their cell phone and they're out doing something else is this sort of diminish their quality. I apologize if I'm misremembering what your paper was about. Oh,
1: that's good. Uh, but <laughs> Did <laughs> Did I, I ever... have a fantastic memory. <laughs> Please well, don't was, do that research about paper. conference
2: calls. Don't do that research about conference calls if you're distracted.
0: Oh, distracted <laughs> conference calling, yeah, putting putting it on mute and, and sort of being in another place. Not that I ever do that.
2: I just read um... about it. <laughs>
0: But but we'd, I'd love to know a little bit more about uh, the research that you're doing these days. Um, what Pew Research Center is up to? I mean, I know the big paper uh, that made waves at APOR was this one we've talked about a lot about non-probability sampling. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you the stuff that you all are, are focused on trying to understand better um, as we approach the 2016 election and as we're experiencing all of these changes in the survey research industry.
1: Sure. Well, as you guys are are well aware, this is a very uh, tumultuous time for survey research, and there are a lot of different uh, questions in terms of data quality that that we're interested in in trying to answer. Um, And we have multiple lines of research going on to to look at some of those. Um, You mentioned our work into uh, online non-probability sampling. We're really excited to be doing work in that area. Uh, We just put out our first report a few weeks ago, And that was taking a look at really data quality from kind of off-the-shelf online survey samples. What do you you get when you go in the field and, and use those? And we talked about that. And we're going to be starting our next phase of research in online surveys. And for that, we're going to be looking more at some of the statistical adjustment and modeling techniques. And frankly, to see if we can use those techniques to reduce some of the biases that we reported on in our first report there. So uh, continuing that line of research is one thing that's really important to us. We're always trying to refine and improve telephone survey research. So as you know, we still do um, random digit dialing national surveys. We do a lot of cell phone interviewing in addition to landline interviewing. Um, And those are, you know, it's it's a fairly complicated Survey design, there's a lot of moving parts, and we feel that uh, we're always trying to study that and see if there's opportunities to make that methodology better. So we have a couple projects um, in the works there as well. And I would say the third major research line that we have relates to our panel. So we have what's called the American Trends Panel, which is a national panel of about 5,000 adults who complete monthly monthly surveys for us. Uh, most of them take them online. A small segment who don't have internet takes them through the mail. And there's a bunch of interesting research questions related to the panel and trying to improve data quality on the panel. Yeah, one of the things that interests me the most about that
0: panel, and we talked about this on our show last week, uh, because I had done some studies with with YouGov, which sort of revealed a sample I, the sample that sort of performed... <laughs> I, I guess I, I'm oversimplifying when I say performed above above average, um, but but was uh, you know pretty close to the mark on some uh, measures of demographics uh, and civic engagement. Um, and you know uh, on the the last show, you know we were talking about well, gosh, can we get? Or I think it was two weeks ago, can we get you know more media to cover these sorts of studies? And there's you know sometimes a blanket prohibition on non-probability online studies. What you all are doing with the trends panel is kind of creating in some ways that that probability sample even though you're using online to actually conduct the field work um with some yes. of the panel because they were recruited in a probability way. Um, and what I've been wondering is, I mean, obviously when you have a probability sample, that's that's the best because without probability samples, a lot of the math we use starts to fall apart. Um but of course, you know, it, it wasn't that necessarily the The probability online panel was head and shoulders above some of the other non probability panels. It's that, you know, not all panels are are created the same. There are some good non probability panels, and there are some that were were way off the mark on a lot of things. I mean, what's yeah. your take on this move toward non probability? And is this this is related? I assume to some of the stuff you're doing with the with the, the you know what are the new models and the new statistical processes we can use to remove some of that bias
2: and you know maybe right. it would be helpful too to just back up one second for folks who are kind of not not as in the weeds as with the data as as we all are and <laughs> why you know why does it matter if a survey is if a sample frame is probability versus non probability what does that mean and you know w- one sounds better but maybe now that's less true those differences are are, are less uh are are less severe than perhaps they were before.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. The term probability is not sort of a, a walking around everyday term that, that people use. Um, so, the basic concept, as I like to explain it, is that you know historically in, in telephone surveys, say, uh, which are probability based, the idea there is that we start from essentially the master frame of all the cell phone numbers in the U.S. and all the landline numbers in the U.S. and because we start from that and we draw a sample, really everyone in the population, the 98% of adults who have either a landline or a cell phone, have a chance of being selected in the survey. And so that means that um, it, from, from the start of your design, you're not, you're really including everyone. No one's systematically left out. And you can contrast that with um, the your average online survey these days. And those start from a different process. They are essentially a convenience sample of people who use the Internet. And they use a range of methods to try to recruit people. Uh, a lot of the pop-up ads or banner ads that you see when you do, you know, try to search for something on the Internet or you're using a social media platform and you see ads, they recruit a lot through those venues they recruit often, if you go to just visit any website, you'll see a pop-up and, hey, take a few minutes to complete this survey. There's just a really range of methods um, through which they compile these samples for online. Um, And for some populations, you know, the sample might look pretty well. But one thing that we found in our work is that the samples that are compiled online that way, they tend to not be terribly representative of um, African American population and the Hispanic population in particular. So if a researcher was was seriously looking to, um, you know, do do study those populations, that would probably not be the best methodology. You'd want to go back to, uh, as I said, a probability-based approach, if possible, where you've got a more comprehensive sampling frame uh, to start with.
2: Right. Okay. All right. Well, that's very helpful. I mean, I think that's really, you know, important uh, thought for our listeners. But some of the other folks that we've spoken to and some of the stuff that's been in your research, if we're understanding correctly, that some of the. The I, I guess it's not selection bias, but some of the things that lead, um, that make some populations more likely to respond or easier to reach with an online non-probability sample actually mirror some of the populations you're looking at when it comes to voting, making perhaps the, the error not as great as maybe one might think. Is that a fair characterization?
1: I, I think that's possible. Um, I, I do. Um, I think it remains to be seen. I want to see more evidence. Um, to support that. But I think that's a a very good theory. So the idea there is that, um, you know, only a a segment of of the U.S. population actually votes. And the question is the people that that don't vote. If you're really trying to just talk about the election and the election outcomes, you don't need the non-voters in your sample, arguably. Um, And to the extent that Voters, those who are more politically engaged, are more likely to take surveys, especially surveys online. um, Then, that might actually work in the pollster's favor under some conditions. So, I I think there there definitely could be some truth to that. But um, you know, there's there's also cautionary tales. You probably um, heard about the the British election last year, where Mm -hmm. um, the online samples and and frankly the telephone surveying that was done um, did not perform too well. There was a, um, it wasn't so much, I think that they, um, over or underrepresented the the voting level or the turnout rate, but they had disproportionately too many people that were, you know, pro labor. So, um, that's the tough thing with elections is that you have to worry about those, those two dimensions equally. You have to worry about getting the turnout forecasted properly, uh, but then you have to worry about sort of the left-right dimension in getting, um, you know, obviously the, the party uh, vote preferences correct as well. And it's 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 difficult to do both of those well and simultaneously.
0: Yes. Welcome welcome to the challenge of our industry. Right. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's one thing if you need to know, okay, I need a sample that's representative of adults across the country because we have a lot of really good government data that tells us what the correct proportions of everything should look like. You can do weights that... That makes sense. But for a lot of political pollsters, there's a bit of guesswork to it. And it's probabilistic thinking. And, well, this person has an 80 percent chance of being a voter. So how much should their response count for? And then this person, gosh, they're only a 20 percent chance of of being a voter. So how much should they count? And, you know, I think a lot of places where pollsters have gotten into trouble in the political space is they assume those people who are less than 70 percent chance of, of voting voters. They don't count as likely voters, so they don't count, and then all of a sudden you wind up with this, you know, sometimes low information and low propensity voters do vote, and that kind of throws a wrench into things. Um, But I also i also want to ask then, you know, we've seen this trend away from ballot test polling, that you've got a lot of major media organizations that love to test the horse race, but the Gallup announced this year they're going to be moving away from that. No more ballot tests, you know, the last job approval, the last save-unfave, the last uh, issue questions, but, but really the ballot is no longer as interesting. And I I think Pew is in the same camp.
1: Is that right? To some extent, um, we are still asking vote preference. We put out a political report um, about a month ago. In you know in it we did report the horse race, but the main thing with us is is really just. Thinking about our research more in terms of trying to answer the whys of the campaign, trying to talk about the narrative. Why is there so much support for a, a Donald Trump candid- candidacy or a Bernie Sanders candidacy? Uh, what are the societal factors? You know, the uh, employment factors, uh, the other things that are, that, that you know, explain why the, the support levels are so high. And, and you're actually right that we're, we're not emphasizing, you know, candidate A is ahead by X points and candidate B has, has Y points. Um, we are not focusing on that as much anymore. And um, the main reason, honestly, is um, we think, if we sort of look back at where Pew Research Center has made the most contribution to the national dialogue put out information that other places weren't putting out you know really enriched um the discussion it it was not our horse race numbers it was you know our economics reports it's our reports on the middle class our reports on hispanic migration stuff like that is um in our opinion much more useful contribution to the dialogue than yet another horse race number And, and the second point there is that there's other people in that space you know there's it seems like a raft of, of new yeah, horse race numbers it. thrown out every day, right? And so there's – from our perspective, there's not a lot of value in us spending the resources to, to, to put those numbers out there because they really get lost in the shuffle, frankly. Yeah, I mean
2: we look at all – we look at everything, every public poll, and we, sometimes it feels like we need another horse race poll, like we need a hole in the head.
1: <laughs> there's so much. <laughs> so exactly. Weird. And I think – and, you know, there's also an argument about what is all that horse race data due to journalism and what is it, how does it affect how this campaign's being covered and what, um, you know, the public is ultimately taking away from that campaign coverage. And while I think political polling is essential and it, it adds a lot of value, the horse race numbers, especially at sort of this stage in the campaign, which is in a bit of a transition period, you could argue that there's not, that's not helping the, the national dialogue very much. So the other thing that I think
0: Pew has always been good at, in addition to, you know, sort of putting out interesting information about where America stands or where the world stands on on a whole host of issues, is that you all do so much uh, work that really helps the whole industry. I mean, the Pew Research Center, you guys, your study back in, I think it was the mid-2000s about response rates and how, you know, response rates used to be here and now they're there. And, you know, and even if you really try to to push and you get a response rate on a survey to go from 9% to 18%. The good news is that the results of those two surveys weren't terribly different. I mean, and then the stuff that you all just did with the non-probability surveys, this stuff has to be expensive. And so you're providing this fabulous public service. Uh, to folks like me who work in, in a, a for-profit capacity in this field, helping make sure that I'm still doing my job right. But I'd love to know a little bit more about just the mission that you all have. I mean, what is your, as sort of the director of survey research at Pew, what is the mission that you have been given, uh, that, that you are trying to achieve in your role and that the Pew Research Center is really looking, looking to achieve? Because you all provide a great public service.
1: No, thank you, and I appreciate that. Um, it absolutely is a central part of my mission as Director of Survey Research. We are fortunate enough to to have the resources to do our own line of domestic methodological work. As you said, we try to um, do some experimentation to talk about uh, the strengths and weaknesses of, of telephone surveys, of online surveys. Um, so we do uh, have a, an entire methods agenda um, in addition to the other work that uh, my colleagues and I do, is is really consulting um, across the center on a lot of the different complex projects that are being fielded. So if um, one of our political scientists has a question about how to design a complex survey or how to analyze um, data from a complex survey, we help out with those questions as well. But the part of the job that that I'm very passionate about is really getting to do this type of research because, as you said, it's it's rare. It's resource intensive. And most organizations just aren't built to be able to conduct it and try to disseminate the results. So I I feel uh, incredibly fortunate to to be here at Pew Research Center where it is part of the mission and it is funded and we have great people to, to execute that research.
2: So tell us a little bit about how you got into the biz. That seems like a good segue. We have a lot of uh, college students and grad students who listen to the show with professors who assign the show to our students, which we love. Um, Tell us a little bit about your path and how you recommend, what path you'd recommend for folks just starting out.
1: Sure. Sure. So I was a freshman at University of Michigan in fall of 2000. And um, I was lucky enough to get involved. They have a program there that links up undergrads with different research projects going around campus. They literally give you a binder that's like two inches thick, and each page is a different research project. And a lot of them were like medical studies or stuff at the business school, but some of them had to do with political science, and I was that's what I was interested in. And there was a project going on by a professor at University of Michigan, Michael Traugott, who – had wrote up that he wanted to study pre-election polls in the 2000 presidential race and this was like September and I ended up being able I interview had to an interview and do all this and I was able to get on that project and if you remember 2000 that was the night where Florida you know got called back and forth in election night it was just this complete disaster really for I think a lot of the <laughs> I happen. remember well Oh yes <laughs> but it was it was so cool and it was so fascinating and I was just like over the moon excited about it because I was engaged in that research and I, through that research, i gotten to know some of the people in the field and that really just um, catapulted my interest um, and really from that moment on, I knew that I wanted to, to work in survey methodology and public opinion polling. I was absolutely, totally hooked. So that's, that's kind of how I got started and then... Once I knew I wanted to do surveys, I, I purposely did something that I'd recommend to any students out there. There's a lot of different sectors, right, to the survey research industry. There's the federal statistical agencies, there's private sector, there's um, the nonprofit sector, and there's the academic sector. And I interned or worked for so, in some capacity for each of those. So I spent a summer at the Census Bureau, um, I worked for a public opinion pollster, O'Neill Research out in in uh, Tempe, Arizona for a summer. I came here to the Pew Research Center and interned, um, and I obviously was working with some some academics uh, first at Michigan and then at the Maryland Joint Program. And it was you just learn so much by exposing yourself to all the different sectors and see how data the survey data is used, see how it's designed, and and understand um, the variance there and all the different. Um, people, both on the designed end and the consumer end. So that was a really fantastic experience that I think helped me figure out where my interests were and and really get a, a good lay of the land in terms of what the field looked like.
2: That's a great story. And the fact that you s- sat through the 2000 polling crisis and thought, this is so cool, is just the different. I guess that's just is a difference between the academic perspective and the partisan <laughs> perspective. I'm sure that I don't, I, I was not sitting
1: thinking, this is so cool <laughs> as
2: I watched that happen. <laughs>
1: Well, cool, cool might be uh, the, the wrong word, but I was fascinated no, for no, sure. It is cool. It, you
2: know. No, it is cool. It's just, you know, that's like the academic problem of what happens when polling goes wrong versus the partisan problem of what happens when the, you know, the polls are different from the outcome and yeah. what you say and who says it, how soon and those are, you know, that's those are all now. The polls just got wrapped up in the whole story. But um, do you, so what are you working on next? Like what's the next big thing that folks should be on the look? Out for you, and how can folks find you?
1: Sure. Um, well, I can start with the second question first. Uh, Pew Research, um, pewresearchcenter.org, that's our website. We've got a, a whole tab devoted to methodology. That's where we post all of our reports, so pretty easy to find. Um, in terms of what's next, um, we're in the field now with our next phase of online survey research, Um, probably sooner than that, we're going to be reporting on our next line of experimentation in in telephone studies. So you mentioned that uh, we do have this legacy of looking at what effect does response rate have on telephone survey data quality, and we're going to be updating that line of research with a slightly different design. Um, This year, one of the questions that I'm interested in asking is whether the fact that we still do 20-minute cold call telephone surveys like is that really still a good idea <laughs> you know in, oh, in today's case yeah. <laughs> so we're going to be looking at whether if you shorten the survey does that have a noticeable effect on data quality um among some other questions but that's uh, a research question i'm really excited to to address to oh
2: someone. yeah oh, that's I can't,
0: good. I can't wait till that comes out because that has long been i i actually get pushback from my clients all the time because I will not allow Echelon to field a survey over a certain amount of time because I just, I, I am of yep. the view that like after a certain amount of time, people are checking out, people are hanging up, it's pointless. Yep. So like yep. I will get pushback from clients a lot who they're like, well, my other pollster would let me do a 22 minute survey. And I'm like, well, then you can go work with us because <laughs> I'm not doing it. Yeah. So I'd love to know if that's just me, like, am I just instinctively... I'd love to have data that proves whether or not I'm being paranoid. <laughs> well,
2: I mean, I think it's, my sense is it's changed. I mean, it, when I first started in the biz, you, people regularly did surveys over 30 minutes. I mean, I occasionally yep. w- had to be part of p- surveys that were 45 minutes that were just, you know, they were still painful to sit through when you're monitoring. I mean, it was tough to imagine how to get folks to do it, but, but then, you know, over time, really 15 to 20 minutes is, is, is a mat, is really a, a hard max there. And, you know, the, but the theory has been that once you get folks kind of on the road, they don't want to hang up. So, you know, if they've already spent seven minutes, you can get them to, you know, go a little bit longer because then they feel like they they've completed something as opposed to wasted the first amount of time. Um, but but obviously at some point people start dropping off. I guess you know you can't you definitely can't do thirty to forty five minutes anymore. That much I know. But I'm dying to know if you can do fifteen to twenty, or do you have to even be shorter than that? I guess it's sort of like the the length of a sound bite is shortened. You know the length of everything is shortened.
1: That's right. Yeah. I mean it feels like it's something that we all know intuitively now, just about the way you know, our modern lives are. But I wouldn't say that there's a lot of great data to really back that up. And I've been there, you know, with, with clients in, in talking about what what length and what burden, you know, is possible to, to subject people to and still get good data. And so that's, you know, that's something that we want to contribute. If we can put uh, some good numbers, some solid numbers to, to back up um, that that data quality argument, we're happy to do that. And Kylie McGeaney here at the Pew Research Center is going to be directing that project for us. We're going to be uh, probably in the field later this summer. And so hopefully this this fall. We'd like to get that out before the election.
2: Oh, that's great. She's one of our active uh, followers and retweeters, so that's good. (laughs) Oh, I
1: love it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Yeah, no, Kylie wants us to be on the the cutting edge, you know, like texting. We'd all be doing text and Snapchat, I think, if she had her way. I I tell her we're moving there, but you gotta, you gotta, you know be... (laughs) Bravo, bravo.
2: (laughs) That's excellent. Well, Courtney, thank you so much. We're so appreciative that you could come. Um, You're really a a role model for all of us in terms of uh, a pioneer in the field and uh, a young woman in methodology and putting out some really great stuff. And so we're just really excited that you could join us.
1: Thank you. You guys are pioneers as well. It's great to be with you. Bye. Take care. Thanks so much. Bye,
0: Courtney. Bye-bye.